Good evening, you are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. This evening, I am hanging out where eagles dare at the home of our elite, irregular panelist, Dr. Bruce Garrick. Hello, gamers. Uh, and as I may or may not have alluded to on another podcast you've heard recently... Because we don't know if um, you've heard it yet. Yeah, we, we're not sure what order these are all coming out in. Um, again, apologies for the disrupted schedule through the month of July. Uh, a few episodes fell through at the last minute. Uh, I'm going to blame Bruce and his uh, dodgy computer. That's my fault. And uh, we're sort of getting caught up here. And so for the last few days, I've been hanging out at Bruce's house, uh, getting a tour of board games. And uh, the topic of this show is sort of a comparative study in board game design that, that Bruce sort of p- prepared the syllabus for. Complet. Um, based on my request that we finally make time to play Ted Racer's Paths of Glory, which Bruce supported me on. Bruce was like, by all means, let's play Paths of Glory. But let's not just play, let's not just play Paths of Glory. Uh, Bruce, you want to take us through a little bit what the uh, overall syllabus was here? I've got the names of the designers here. Sure. Uh, if you need, well, them, I can but, go through them. No, yeah. I know them. Um, so we played Paths of Glory. That's Ted Racer's uh, game, Charles S. Roberts' award-winning game from 1998. That sort of set us on our current. Uh, well, I wouldn't. I don't know about current, but it 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 demonstrated for a lot of people, just how transformative card-driven designs could be. Because I know that um, Mark Herman's card-driven We the People had sort of set the stage, but Ted Racer really refined it and took it to a completely different level. And Wargaming has really never been the same since. Um, and it was it was fascinating... I think to gamers at the time that you could use the system and take something that had been had such a, a reputation that was as bad as World War One and completely rehabilitate it. But I didn't feel like that it made sense to just play that game all weekend. Um, we could have probably spent another whole day playing at least because um, the full turn is the full sorry the full turn the full campaign is twenty turns. Um, but I thought that the time would be better spent playing some other games. And those games would be more recent designs about World War I. And so I chose two. I, so, I chose uh, Kirk Ullman's The Lamps Are Going Out, which is a 2016 release from Compass Games. And then I chose Kurt Keckley's Fields of Despair, which is a 2017 release from um, GMT. And these games are all very different. Uh, Paths of Glory is a traditional card-driven game. Lamps Are Going Out is an area movement game with some cards, but dice and no movement or combat factors. And Fields of Despair is a block game. I didn't pull out any traditional wargamey games about the First World War. I, I do have you know several, including uh, Balance of Powers, which is John Gorkowski's design. Um, because if you're going to do World War One with traditional hexes and counters, you're really going to end up with a monster that you're not going to be able to play. And that's, that's the whole problem that uh, Ted Racer was trying to solve when he designed Paths of Glory, which was, I mean, Paths of Glory still takes a long time to play, but 
you can do it on a reasonable sized space and it's pretty snappy. You don't sit there waiting for your opponent to take the turn for a long time. Um, and so this is sort of a, well, this was an attempt to sort of let's play some games that you can do World War One in in a short period of time. But Rob, I want to throw it back to you and ask you, you know, you want to play Paths of Glory. Why Paths of Glory? Is it is that is it the fact that it's a World War One game, or is there something else about it that you... Because you've been mentioning this game to me every time that we talk since the last time you were here. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a couple things. Uh, one, it's sort of a board gaming missed connection. Uh, it was in a board game store I used to frequent, uh, and it was on sale, and I just didn't snag it, and I was this close to getting it. So it's always been one of those games where I'm like, what if I bought that game? You know, what would it, you know? Did, did I miss out on something? And the answer is yes and no. Uh, but I think more broadly, World War One fascinates me. Um, something that I return to a lot is something that Alistair Horn writes in the introduction to uh, the reprinted edition of uh, Verdun 1916, The Price of Glory, which is that he talks about how during World War II or after World War II, there's this sort of almost smugness that, well, the Allies had won that war without having another Verdun, right? That, like, you know, the the, the art of, of military science, the art of war had progressed beyond where a battle like Verdun was possible. And the point uh, Horn makes, because at this point now he's beginning to, he's writing in light of the increasing amount of evidence coming out that, like, the, just how catastrophic the Eastern Front was. And he's writing about how, well, it turns out there were a lot of Verduns in World War II, but they just happened sort of out, of out of sight. But I think that touches on something about the way history is remembered and presented and that has made study of World War I and World War I gaming particularly enticing to me, which is this idea that World War I is a nakedly attrition-based conflict. Um, there is no... There are advancements in the way the sides fought, but ultimately this is a war that will be decided by total war, who is going to have the last fresh battalions to commit, who is going to have the industrial base that stays standing the longest, who can produce the most shells. That is what that war is about. Ultimately, I would argue, World War II also comes down to that. But the way World War II is remembered is as a war of cut-and-thrust panzer movements, armored spearheads, uh, you know, clever, uh, you know, uh, ruse de guerre. Um, and games made about World War II tend to reflect that idea, that they are games of tactical and operational brilliance, where they encourage you to think in those, along those lines. And that's not to say those games aren't good, or that uh, it's that's not an interesting way of presenting the war, but there's something I find really fascinating about World War I and the way it is presented as this completely pragmatic and ruthless battle of attrition and grinding willpower, right? The name of the game is just logistics and commitment. Deliver more shells, more men, more preparation at the point of attack and it probably still won't get through, and you'll have to do it all over again. And that, I think, in for whatever reason, I find that really interesting because there's not a lot of games. There's not a lot of games that do that. A lot of games want to 
not necessarily, let's say flatter the player into thinking that, you know, you, board gamer, you, war gamer, sitting at your PC, maybe you have what it takes to be the next great Gadarian. Maybe you could have been one of history's great captains. A World War game, World War One game, cuts that shit out entirely and is like, you know what? For all the history you've read, for all the thoughts you've had, you would have had no better idea. You would have had no better ideas than to throw battalions across no man's land, just like they did. And I find that fascinating. Okay. Well, that's an interesting place to uh, a sort of thing to jump off from. Then that's our that can be our jumping off point because we played three very different games. So let's talk about. Uh, well, we can talk about anyone you want because my my first question would be: Did any one of those games seem to come close to that ideal that you are uh, describing, while still being an interesting game experience? Uh, on that front, I think Fields Fields of Despair is the clear winner mm-hmm. for me. Okay, uh, Fields of Despair gets across two things that I think are really important. Uh, so Fields of Despair is the block game. Yes. Uh, it uses hidden information. Yes. Uh, because the nature of a block game is that the strength of each unit is written on the block, but that is visible only to the player controlling it until combat resolution time. Right. Prior to that, all your opponent sees is a line of enemy-colored blocks approaching. Which is cool. Uh, Triumph and Tragedy uses a similar sure. thing. This is the nature of there, the block There are game. many block games, yes. Although um, this block game is a little different in that Traditionally, the block games, uh, each each uh, counter goes up to strength four because there are four sides to the square block. But um, Fields of Despair takes it further and basically just uses the block as a rotating track of strength. So your blocks can actually go up to 20, and you're simply limited by the number of blocks you have in the counter mix, which uh, I think goes a long way towards getting you that ability to have uh because these these strength points just get decimated and the way you're rolling dice and sort of it I mean it's a it's a uh, it's a bag of dice game but you're rolling so many dice that I think it's really uh it, it really gives you the flavor of the, you're you're not going to have it, it's the the outlying results are such outliers that you're never you're never going to get 60 hits on 60 dice right that's just not going to yeah. happen so the variations, it's, they vary within a range that's reasonable. You're throwing a lot of dice. You have this, you know, pretty, um, uh, it's, I mean, the, the distribution is, is, is such that you're not going to see results like we saw in a different game, but we'll talk about that. Um, but you're just pouring these strength points into these blocks that then just get depleted and just, just get bled and further and further and further. Well, and so as, um, I was just hanging out with some friends talking about this game, and I was describing it. Uh, the most a hex can hold in Fields of Despair is three blocks. Mm-hmm. And I was describing this game to them, and I said, so each of those blocks could be one, or each of those blocks could be 20, which is an amazing like differential. Like Literally, right. you could look at a maximum stack, mm-hmm. and that could literally be nothing. Mm-hmm. Or it could be the largest army possible in the game. Right. Yes, uh, that's true. And that creates a really, uh, you know, exciting level of the fog of war. Like, you know, how much do you really have in front of you? You sort of have to puzzle that out. Um, but the two things that I think Fields of Despair uh, brings out really well is that first, 
We played the grand scenario. Yes. Uh, the, the full war. Mm-hmm. So that opens with 1914. And it's, by the way, it's only a Western Front game. Yes, which yeah. makes it the outlier among the games we play. Right. Um, but yes, yeah, so it opens it, 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 it opens with um, basically the, the, the von Schlieffen plan. Mm-hmm. And it continues all the way till uh, the end of the war and the arrival mm-hmm. of the Americans. Mm-hmm. And what's cool is... The game convincingly feels, in those opening turns, it convincingly feels like 1914. In fact, 1914 is the longest phase of the game. I think yep. that has two extra turns compared to the other years. Uh, I'm, it, I think in, in terms of representation, uh, I think it might be a little a little longer. But it is it does seem like it goes on a lot longer than, you know, 19... Because 1915, 16, sure. and, and, you know, 17, 18 are... are um, are when the when the trench warfare begins, I don't know. It, it just seems like it seems like stuff was going on. I will have to I actually. That's a good question. We'll, we can look at the the, the Turner record track and yeah. find out. But the um, the game does feel very mobile in 1914, and I think that that is uh, that gives you a very nice feel for the change in the character of the combat, as opposed to maybe something like Paths of Glory. Now, there's other stuff that is in that game that I think is interesting, such as the hidden research and the ability Mm -hmm. to research things like chlorine gas or research things like uh, gas masks. You have tech for your tanks. You have tech for your aircraft. You buy artillery sort of secretly. Um, Everything, it's a a game in which everything's degrading. Your your ability to maintain your your supply network is degrading and you have to spend points on it. And uh, there's an economic aspect. The Eastern Front is abstracted, but... In, I think in a very clean and clever way. Um, so it really is a, the game's thesis is, hey, we're just going to, the, these two uh, combatants just were dumping manpower at each other, just out of a big, just a giant bucket of manpower. And here's your manpower. And it's going to, in every turn you see, wow, I'm getting 30 guys. Wow, I'm getting 40, 50 guys. I get 50 in this turn. And, and then they just melt away as you just get destroyed by enemy's trench dice um so i think and and the 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 core the concurrent thesis is that this is all being uh supported by an eroding industrial base that you know you're you're losing men but you're also losing resources and you may not be able to keep it up because uh you know submarine warfare versus uh versus the naval blockade now, it is a scripted game in the sense that if you don't do anything about, you know, if you, if you, if you don't uh, do anything about the U.S. and or, or uh, should say, under, if, you, if you play nice with the submarines, the U.S. is still going to enter the war. You can't keep them out. And uh, if you, uh, unless you're very, unless you completely ignore the Eastern Front and are very unlucky, um, you should be able to knock the Russians down. What... That will happen in um, in the scripted time as well. Is just when you how many strength points do you have left on the Eastern Front that come back that you can use on the, in the West? So you know there might be a huge flood of of troops that are going to come back, or a, or a, you know tiny trickle. But um, that game is the closest. I agree. I think to the to the to the description that you had stated. Yeah, and uh, like I was really tickled by. In the opening phases of that game, uh, and I've read 
a number of books about the first year of that war. And I was sort of tickled by how easily I fell into basically the same traps as uh, the French generals and Joffre uh, in overvaluing my positions uh, along my right flank uh, and thinking I could hold back the German, uh, you know, hammer blow hitting my left flank. And it got pretty scary. Like, there was a turn there where I realized that I had nothing, like... I had nothing between Bruce and Paris, uh -huh. and Bruce was starting to turn my flank and come down behind the balance of my armies, and I just had to start massively retreating and trying to just throw together whatever I had left uh, between him and Paris. Um, now there is a cool, there's a cool uh, mechanic here that makes something like that more feasible and really throws in the chaos. Uh, your estimations of enemy strength, which is a strategic reorganization phase at the end of every turn. So each turn has uh, basically four phases. A, uh, you know, player A goes once, then B, then A, then B. Uh, and then after that, the turn is over, and the turn enters the strategic reorganization phase, where you can basically redistribute your strength points anywhere you want, uh, along your positions, which allows you to massively deplete some positions and reinforce others. So I was able to throw together a scratch force between you and Paris, and I did luck out, which is basically that you missed that there was a fortification uh, at Paris, and so your decisive blow uh, sort of ran aground on uh, the the defensive works outside Paris. Yes, because the, um, the bag of dice combat system means that you roll hits on fives and sixes uh, normally, but only on sixes in a fortification. So your your um, probability is halved, which was huge. Yeah, uh, and so we had a really exciting sequence of battles uh, in and around Paris, and then the war sort of stabilized, and it turned into... The race for the sea was already complete in this version, uh, but it turned into a race for the uh, plains between Paris and Verdun, uh, sort of the, the race along the left bank, uh, as, as it were, um, which, was, which was pretty cool. And then you start to see how once trench warfare arrives... Um, the defender's advantage becomes really overwhelming. Uh, that becomes actually very effective to throw a light screening force in front of the enemy and make them attack you because there's plus five dice to every uh, defensive action. Yeah, if, you, if there are enough. If you have, so 17 or more strength points get played, and it actually scales by the number of strength points that are attacking. And uh, I will point out things. So I, 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 I did like that trench dice thing because I think for... Um, it's the one thing that discourages people a little bit from using large, you know, the, 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 the traditional problem with block games, or at least block hex games, is that it encourages you, especially in, in games where the stacking limits are as high as this, that it encourages you to just concentrate all your forces at the, for the attack or at the point of attack, because all you need to do is cover the flanks and... and slow them down because the the way the combat rules work you usually can't there's there's you can move further than you can attack right so you if you stop somebody you could move you can move two hexes and attack or if you're adjacent to somebody then you're going to have to attack that person as soon as you move one hex so you just have some screening forces and you put everybody in uh, in a giant hammer fist but what that does is it simply gives the 
defender the ability to throw a bunch of extra dice. So this might actually encourage you to spread your troops out all along the line so that uh, you're never giving the defender that many dice. Although the more attacks you make, the more dice that person will get. So uh, the, the, on defense, right, if you, if you attack three times and you're giving the defender three dice, three extra trench dice per attack, then that's nine extra dice and that's the nine extra, you know, the potential for that many hits that you'll take. So it really is attritional. Um, it does have that problem that I have with block games, which, like I said, you concentrate all your force, and consequently, you have these weird positions where both players know that, you know, well, that's just a one, and that's just, I don't have to worry about that. So you don't really worry about, once you, once you realize what the other player has, you sort of don't worry about it, um, which I think the strategic reorganization phase kind of helps, uh, where you can move everything around. Um, but we had these you know, these positions where it's pretty clear to me that Rob didn't have anything in a certain place. And I think it was clear to Rob that I didn't have anything in a certain, they were just, you know, sort of dummy blocks. And rather than covering those, we both sort of took the risk that the person wouldn't reinforce that. Now, those things were in non, really non-strategic positions. So you can get away with that. But it, block games, in my experience, lead to these bizarre sort of concentrations of force and, 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 and um, what do you call them, um, absences of force or, or, or force troughs that, uh, that I don't think would happen in a, in a regular hex war game. No, they wouldn't, but I think the thing that I liked there was that it made the value of intelligence uh, higher. Because, yes, there were a lot of spaces where we both kind of knew it was up. Like, we both knew where each other's thin sections of line were. But is it thin everywhere? That's the thing. So a thing you can do in this game is you can send your fighter squadrons out and scout uh, enemy positions. It's and, a very cool mechanic. Yeah. Um, and once dogfighting comes along, uh, you know, you can counter the enemy's uh, aircraft efforts and do battle in the skies right. and try to prevent them from seeing what you've got. And there's also some cool bluff mechanics with that. Artillery and air both follow this pattern. You're just adding chits to a location. Back and forth. Resources will be deployed. Um, but... What ended up making that, I think, work a little bit better for me, maybe, was that maybe most of that section of the line is all ones. But what if there's like a 18 or a 20 somewhere in there, mm -hmm. and I attack as if I'm just going up against ones, and then I get just utterly shit-hammered mm -hmm. by, you know, you've secreted a sledgehammer somewhere in there. Okay. Uh, and so that made, like, and maybe that's me playing a little too cautiously, mm -hmm. but definitely for me, it... it Dovetailed really nicely with the hidden information and the way you can lift the, selectively lift the fog of war in that mm -hmm. game, uh, because there, like for instance, uh, a thing that happened sort of mid-war is that uh, after Bruce had sort of uh, raced to try to cut off and isolate the positions in and around Verdun, um, he switched the center of gravity of his line to basically the coastal region up against the BEF. Uh, to really throw uh, a speed bump in the path of an increasingly powerful uh, British army. But the thing is, you pretty much concentrated everything there into, I think, maybe one stack, two, maybe. Mm -hmm. But, like, that line was very thinly held, except for there was a massive clenched fist in and around uh, uh, Dunkirk and Calais. Mm -hmm. And... 
I didn't know that that had changed until it was almost too late. Like, I uncovered one powerful stack, and I knew, like, mm-hmm. okay, actually, now the main action of, of the Western Front is actually up north here. Okay. But I thought it was really cool, because, like, everywhere else, everywhere else in that line, there was nothing there. Mm-hmm. But if I'd missed that stack, mm-hmm. I would have been in trouble. Right. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, think, I think that the limited uh, information mechanic works well here. And it does the the, the air reconnaissance uh, does a nice job. The strategic reorganization means that you can never really think that something that's there one turn is going to be there the next turn. You can uh, you can swap blocks in and out and and move things around, and it's just um, it's just a big bluffing game. Now. I'll switch switch gears here because um, this is very much different from the game we played before that, which was Pass Glo- uh, um Sorry, which was uh, Lamps are going out, which covers the whole war and it covers the Near East and it covers uh, Africa, East Africa, and it covers um, the totality of the land combat and there's some there's abstracted naval and and submarine combat um but here you're rolling dice in a different way and uh, can you can you tell me what you said to me after uh we finished that game you you looked at me and you were you you made a comment uh yeah um this was one of the more surprising incidents of of the weekend i looked at you and i believe my exact words you son of a bitch, putting this troll pick of a World War One game into the hopper here. Uh, what's the meaning of this? Okay. And why did you think that? Because, to me, it felt like the most ridiculously ahistorical treatment of World War One that was possible. And I'll explain what this is. So... Uh, the lamps are going out. It's very easy to parse. It's a very easy game to pick up and play. It is a very is clearly a push your luck game. Area movement with push your luck dice. Yep. As long as you have fresh troops, you can commit to an attack. You just keep rolling dice against the enemy's dice, and once you have them all uh, at the spent status, once you flipped all their counters to spent status, you can drive them out. Uh, and there's some ways they can avoid giving up ground, but but generally that's that's what's going to happen. But Once they fall back and you advance into the the space they vacated, you can just keep going. Like, you can, and this is how our game ended, uh, you can march all the way from eastern Germany to Moscow and Petrograd in a single turn if you just keep racking up the wins against the Russian army. And so, in effect, what, what it looks like to all appearances is that the Lamps Are Going Out is a World War I game that throws in a massively overpowered Blitzkrieg mechanic for the absolute hell of it. And so playing it, I was like, this is absurd. This is a preposterous World War I game. Because in this game, breakthroughs are not only possible, they are inevitable. And so while it was a fun game, and it looked very nice at the great presentation, it was a laughable excuse uh, for a World War I game. Except for, and this is what you told me as you began to crack up, uh, what is the most popular complaint leveled against this game? So the most popular complaint about the lamps are going out 
is that it is too history straightjacketed, that it is basically going to play out the same way every time, which means that it's too wedded to the historical outcome of World War I, that every good thing is going to happen like in World War I, and you're just not going to get that much variation. And so I thought that was a, I thought that was a hilarious, just a great, a great response to a game because um, it certainly did seem like the result we got was kind of ludicrous. However, this is the danger um, of making pronouncements about games. I'm not saying that you did, but just like, you know, people are in general like, oh, you know, I played this game once and then they go on on these long, you know, uh, you know, discourses about this was this and that's wrong with the game or whatever. But if you play the game and use the lessons that you learned from the mechanics and from what happened in the you know earlier playings, you can quickly get to the point where you are unable to do things in that kind of way because your opponent knows exactly how to prevent that. And so, for example, the 1914 attack is almost scripted to fail. It's you can almost not possibly take Paris. It's dramatic and exciting as it yeah. unfolds and it feels suspenseful, but even toward like this is my first playthrough. Right. When that attack stalled, the entire thing felt like a cutscene with dice. Yeah. And it, and you think, "Wow. I get it. I see, you know, it's really dramatic, but there's just no way you're going to make all those die rolls." And then when the last when the offensive peters out, you're like, "Aha." Well, and there's an important bit of context for the game we played, and this is what further prepared me for this game being just, again, ludicrous. Bruce had some of the worst dice rolls uh, possible in the game, like to the point where sometimes you play a board game and you just start to feel bad for how it's going. You're embarrassed by the luck you are benefiting from. You're sitting there and you're watching, they're making the correct moves. Right. And it's just all going to shit. And yep. you start to feel like, well, this is, this is why war games can suck sometimes. Right. Because... This this guy's done everything right, and he's just getting utterly ruined right. by these dice rolls. Right. And so Bruce, two things happened for Bruce. Uh, first, he had a he eventually cobbled together a massively power powerful uh, Austro-Hungarian army uh, to clobber the Russians in uh, in Poland. Yeah. And it was a scratch force of Russians. And they just won every single dice roll. Yeah. They just massacred it was the Austrian. So Gators. painful. Like it was that army was basically destroyed in the space of so that was Bruce pointed out even at the time, he's like, Well, this is basically what happened. Yep. Like this is like Galicia is just a complete debacle right. uh, for uh, for for the Austro-Hungarians. And then, because I've now taken effectively no damage, um, with a pretty light force of Russian troops. I just start attacking into Germany, which is almost undefended. And my luck holds. I continue to win every battle. And so on, like, turn one or two of the war. Just turn two. Turn two. Um, the Russians march into Berlin. Mm-hmm. Yep. And Bruce has, to the end of his turn, to recapture Berlin. Or he's lost the war. The game is over. Right. And so I'm like, well, this game is crashed on. Like, this this is basically a game design crash. Like, right. this is what, board, like, board games do not, just do not, like, hard lock the way PC games do. But right. a board game can crash, and this yeah. felt like one of those situations. Right. But no. The game still works in this context. Because 
the Germans can come back with a huge rallying force, and they have the same push-your-luck mechanic. But there's something else that uh, is supposed to happen, help the Russians normalize for the luck that the Germans can have once they commit all their armies. And this is the part I didn't do, but which the Allies did do historically. Um, so I'm thinking I'm going to win this thing just on the strength of the Russians. But in the meantime, because I'm feeling vulnerable on the Western Front, I spent all my production points, didn't give them any of my allies. I spent them all on French and British armies. Right. Which you didn't need. Didn't need them at all because the Western, it was, it was locked up. There was no way the Germans were going to break through. But I felt like I had a pretty big Russian army out there. There was no way what was going to happen could happen. Uh, but I'd missed a trick. There's something that the Western allies are supposed to do and something that they did historically do uh, that I didn't do. Yeah, so... So there's no uh, there's there's no story like his story, uh, unless it's you re- unless it's you recreating it with dice, and uh, the um, the attack basically my counterattack I used the troops on the western front and I had to get them back, uh, and I attacked, and on the I think on the last possible I got an event or it's a card basically a card where I get, get I think a plus one or plus two modifier. I finally had to use that to get Rob out of Berlin. I was thinking it's my last attack, my last die roll. If that failed, I would have lost the game. But I got it back, and then I simply repositioned the German army, and I proceeded to um, to go east and then northeast and then hooked around and um, just I, I cleaned out uh, Moscow and I cleaned out St. Petersburg and then the game was basically that was that was that was the that was basically the end of the game and I will point out that on the in the other uh, first time playing that I had with, it, with somebody else who had played it for the first time that's exactly what happened because there was no uh, my opponent was not worried about that happening so but if you are and if you take the appropriate precautions then that won't happen and the uh, if you you don't push that hard with the Russians, and you uh, let the Austrians sort of stumble, and then um, you make sure the Germans don't break through, and then you're going to have this back and forth just like you are on the uh, Western Front. But eventually, you know there are cards and things that will will you you will win on the on the uh, on the. Uh, Eastern Front because uh, you will have uh, you reinforcements and things. You know things will happen. You build build back up, and um, and the game really is plays very much the same way every time. And they've sort of gotten it to the point where it really will play historically if you kind of do everything optimally. So it's it just I think it's a great example of how it's a very it's a very straightforward game. It. it has a very historical sort of back and forth, but it can break easily, and that's where it sort of turns into this weird, um, this this it can it can it can veer wildly off if players aren't very attuned to what the possibilities are. Now that I feel is the um, exact opposite of. Our third game, which is Paths of Glory, which is the classic World War One game, um, and I think when you played that, when we played that game, and your comment was something like, you know, this really feels like great history. 
like you, I think. Is that, is that yeah. accurate? Yeah. Um, I mean, there's, there's a few things. Um, one of the things Paths of Glory brings out really well, I think, is the escalation and widening scope of that war. Uh, so the opening moves on that game are really quite limited. Like, it, it's, it's a small-scale... Compared to what it's going to become, it's still a small-scale war. Um, you're only using a handful of the spaces that are available uh, across the game board, and the Balkans are largely inactive. Uh, the Middle East is inactive. Uh, but nevertheless, even within... Even within that narrow scope, there's still enough space for the Germans to really uh, smash the Western Front uh, of the Allies. It's again, it, it did bring across that feeling of there is a German steamroller uh, coming at you, and how are you going to hold it back? And one of the things that being a card-driven game, uh, so if you're familiar with Twilight Struggle, you're you're roughly familiar with this. Um, the thing you don't have to worry about that you do in Twilight Struggle is that you're not drawing from a common deck, right? Uh, where you'll have an enemy player's event in your hand that you want to play for operations points for, like, you know, it's a valuable uh, four-action card, and if you play it uh, in Twilight Struggle, the enemy can play their event off of it, and then you get the actions. That's not going to happen in this game. All the right. cards are your cards. Everyone's playing from their own deck, but. Uh, there's still a tension, particularly for the allied player at the start, which is that you can give up some of that real flexibility to bring additional forces onto the board, which you desperately need to hold the Germans back. Additionally, you can burn some of these cards for reinforcement points. Replacement points. Uh, yeah, to, uh, to restore depleted armies right. and bring uh, casualties back onto the board. Right. Which, again, you will desperately need those guys uh, to right. be bodies in the line as well. Yeah. Um, and so every turn, it really feels like you are always on the horns of a, of a brutal dilemma. You are always, do, do I rob Peter or I, right. do, do I pay Paul here? Right. Uh, which I think is is how a game like that should should feel to us, at least to me. Like so right. much of World War One. Um, and I think Commander of the Great War on PC does a good mm -hmm. job of this as well. World War I, at the highest level of command, resources were so limited that, I mean, literally, you, you, like, the Battle of the Somme is the big allied action of 1916. That's the only throw of the dice they've got on the Western Front. They, they, the industries and the countries involved do not have the people or the industrial base to produce enough shells to do more than one of these battles a year. That's basically what they do. Paths of Glory brings that out. If you want to expand the front, if you want to create some sort of Balkan front flank attack move, that is going to be coming out of your one of your major theaters. Mm -hmm. Are you comfortable doing that? Right. And the Paths of Glory never lets you get comfortable with right. that. Right. Now, that's a very, I mean... In many ways, that's that's aided by the card-driven design because it's giving you every every play as a dilemma. It's also a pretty interesting deck builder in the sense that you are calling certain cards from your hand by playing the events, uh, which I think you know I didn't really appreciate when I was first playing it. I mean, the game is 1998. We're 20 years on from the release of Paths of Glory, and it's still um, I think it's still a very beloved game. Now, there's a problem with Paths of Glory, and there. Are there are people who absolutely despise it and won't play it. 
for a simple reason, which is that despite all of its historicity and all the things you described, it's probably the least historical game of, about World War I that, we're, that we've played. Although I didn't play it that way, but there is a way to play Pass of Glory, and it's sort of become part of the meta of the game, which is that because of an uh, sort of an anomaly with how the, well, it wasn't an anomaly because it was deliberate, but uh, for the unintended uh, exploit, which is that in the interior of Germany, there are two separate sort of paths that are one, it's just a path of one space, you know, per track. So, you know, in the, in, in the, in France and Belgium, spaces have multiple other spaces connecting to them. So you can make flank attacks. Uh, there's a specific flank attack mechanism. You can inflict casualties before the defender fires. But in, as you go through the interior of Germany, that's not possible. And so you are faced with these frontal attacks against these two spaces. I think one is Essen and the, I can't remember what the other one is, but, um, and so some, smart person. And I think what, uh, my friend Nick Karp, who was uh, formerly of Shenandoah Studio, he used to be a real uh, a real shark in uh, Paths of Glory. And what, the, what he developed, in, along with some other people, was that there's no point in attacking on the Western Front at all, because the way that the victory conditions work, the Allies can drive all the way into Germany and not get anywhere because of the stacking limits and because of the fact that the German armies have five combat factors per army, and the French have three. So it's a, you're, you're rolling at a 9 to 15 disadvantage, which is a couple columns. Um, and Columns on the combat on the resolution combat, table. Combat resolution table, right. You're shifting what is possible with the with the dice roll. So right. a, a shift to the left on the columns mean, means no matter what you roll, you're rolling a substantially less impactful yeah, result. You have a, you have a, you're a disadvantage you know, statistically, and if the Germans entrench those those uh, spaces, then you're shifting further to the left. So the the chance of a of a of an attack making it through that defense is low. And all the Germans then do is they take every single army they can spare and just shift all their weight to the eastern front and just crush the Russians in 1914. They just you know they just blitz them. They use all those high value cards that they would be using on the western front and use them on the eastern front. And um, and it's very effective. And then the second thing they do is they keep the Allies bottled up in, you know, Western and, and Central Germany. And then when Italy enters the war, they just go and crush the Italians. And at this point, they should have enough uh, victory points. They can win the game without ever, uh, you know, really doing anything to France. So once that was discovered, you know, you, it's it's interesting to see, you know, I, I remember when Passive Glory came out and I loved it. I thought it was, you know, I was just so uh, mesmerized by how it had taken this history and really turned it into an interesting game. And then people started posting about, you know, the uh, the Italian strategy and, you know, pulling out of the Western Front entirely. And people started, you know, arguing about, well, you know, what do we need to do to fix this? And, you know, uh, this is, but, and then it, 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 it turned into, and there was some real acrimony about it. Like, well, this shouldn't happen. This shouldn't work. This is a, you know, this game is poorly designed. And um, I think that it's a reasonable complaint because if you're playing a game to win and you want to use the optimal strategy, then that might certainly be, um, might be reasonable. Now, we weren't going to play 
the whole campaign. So that strategy doesn't really work very well if you're only playing like three or ten turns. Um, I, in ten turns, I guess you could you could probably you could probably make it work. But um, but uh, so I just I just went for the standard Western Front um, attack. But I knew, you know, I had played the game, and I've been playing the game for a long time, and I knew that as long as I kept pushing in the west, if I could just hold you off in the east and just bring enough guys to not have you take Berlin, then uh, then I was safe. And I made some good progress. I got some good attacks, uh, played some, you know, timely cards, and uh, I did get, uh, you know, basically overran France. At which point, you know, we decided that was, uh, you know, that I think that the, the uh, auto victory conditions are going to take effect. Um, so the game has this these two sides. There's this very very um, historical card driven script almost, and then there's the subversion of that script. Yeah, something that I find interesting about this game is. So comparing the so comparing Paths of Glory to Lamps Are Going Out, Lamps Are Going Out is a game that even though even if optimal play ends up feeling very historical, mm-hmm. um, I'm not sure based on what I what I what I've played, the game itself would ever feel very much like World War One to me, mm-hmm. right? Like as a complete design, it pushes you in the direction of putting history back on the rails and, mm-hmm. and keeping things moving mm-hmm. uh, according to script. But in the you know moment to moment play of the game, it's going to feel like a very rough approximation of World War One. Mm-hmm. Like World War One just doesn't have cascading breakthroughs. That right. that doesn't feel like World War One to me. Paths of Glory feels in every detail like a World War One game. Mm-hmm. Uh, the slow grinding progress of the Russians methodically mm-hmm. like. Picking apart the uh, you know Austro-Hungarian strong points, uh, you know slowly making their way into the massive holes in the German lines uh, in the east. Everything in that game feels like what a strategic World War One game should feel like, mm-hmm. and yet because of this, um, because of the artifice of the the map layout mm-hmm. on the Western Front and sure. the fact that. Uh, there is nothing saying the Germans can't just mm-hmm. radically like redeploy from their starting positions and, mm-hmm. and face no penalties for doing so. It ends up feeling like a game that in if in the zoomed in, you know, moment to moment level, mm-hmm. it's a great World War One game. Feels just like just feels just like the real thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in the macro level, it's not World War One at all. Mm-hmm. And encourages you to basically throw all the history out the window, right. and now you're playing uh, something that is far more fanciful right. than any other game we've played, including a revisionist world, like not a revisionist, but um, a sandboxed World War II era game, Cataclysm. Right, right. Yeah, it's it's a very, it can be taken in a lot of weird ways, um, but then I think a lot of these games that are, you know, the more complex the system gets, the easier it is to find the exploits you know there's a you know third reich is the classic world war um world war ii strategic level game in which one of the probably the optimal allied strategy is for the german for the uh, british to make a if the germans don't play it right you should immediately make uh, an amphibious landing at wilhelmshaven by the british 
right? Because that's just how the rules work out. If you everything that results from that play leads to a certain line of play, right? And and the more with complex rule sets, the more you plug the holes, the more they find other holes, or the way that that sort of tears the fabric. I think that uh, the lamps are going out does a great job of tuning the game to a to its mechanic, which is the push your luck. Because if you look at the probabilities of your likelihood of success, given the number of units the British French have, you have to be way, way, way out on the you know binomial distribution to uh, to to take Paris on the first turn, and after that, it's kind of impossible. And then, similarly, if you arrange the Russians right, you can you can make it also impossible to take Russia down. But you sort of have to know exactly where the units go, and I feel like that mechanic is well-tuned to this optimal placement of units, which just happens to be historical, and I think that that has a lot to do with the way that the areas are drawn, and where you can go and where you can't go, and there's some of these, you know, Brest-Litovsk is this kind of weird-shaped... Um, uh, area that's the, the way the, the adjacencies it's all very um it's all very well tuned um but then it's going to because of the the push your luck and you know what the what the probabilities are and it's very straightforward you can make it so that it doesn't go off the rails unless you don't realize what you need to do to prevent it i think one of the other things that was interesting across these three games is that um one of the Massive vulnerabilities I have when I play historical war games is that a lot of times I know the history roughly, um, and so it feels like I, I'm playing, I'm reading a book, but I already know how it ends. I know, I know the traps that the characters can fall into, and so now it is a matter of applying that knowledge to this new scenario. And the thing I always forget is that I'm playing a game that is an approximation to a varying degree of precision uh, about the conflict, using it as its theme, and also may put a completely different priority on aspects of the story than some of the historians I've read or the way it's commonly understood. And so I think The Lamps Are Going Out is a really good example of this because even though the even though the push-your-luck mechanic and the breakout attacks, that, that is clear as day, easy to understand, what really got me, I think, in the end is that I'm looking at a map of Europe. The Russian line is pretty far into Germany. Paris, uh, not Paris, Moscow and Petrograd are miles away, like, set, like they're like more than half the board away. And there's still a part of me that's going to think, well, that's just impossible. Like that's all of Russia. Like right. that is all of Western Russia between right. the German positions. Like there's no way that can work because that's just not how, like, that's just not how history works. That's not the logic it proceeds right. according to. But in order to arrive at a historical outcome, that is exactly the logic that the lamps are going out, uh, you know, follows. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting to me this week, like playing these all back to back to back. Mm -hmm. It really threw in a stark relief the degree to which each of these games uh, 
adopt radically different interpretations of what like authenticity and uh, like faithfulness to the historical record mm-hmm. really mean. Yep. Like, is it faithful in the moment or is it faithful in the big picture? Mm-hmm. And it's very hard to do both. Maybe impossible right. with with a subject like this. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that uh, you know, all it takes is one mechanic that you don't fully like grok until. And I and I I I feel like this is you know there's no. There's certainly no shame in not doing it because I I wouldn't be able I don't think I would quite get it unless I saw it happen because there is a rule in which uh, unoccupied enemy spaces have an inherent uh, garrison strength of one if they uh, are, don't have any features and two if they're I think a mountain or um, if they have a resource in them for sure but like, the the point being that. If you're going through a bunch of empty provinces, you just have to not roll a one. You have, so the, the game works such that uh, you um, you just you have to be actually the attacker needs to um, needs to tie the um, the defender's roll or get a higher. But then once you actually um, start winning in a in a space, you get plus one. So it's a big push mechanic. In any case, you get these cascading rolls, and and you don't even need a cascade. All you need to do is going through a whole bunch of provinces that to have nothing in them. You just don't roll a one. So if I don't roll a one three or four times, which is a reasonable, you know, five times, five, six times, five, six times, five, six, um, it's a reasonable expectation, then I'm going to be at the gates of Moscow, and now I'm going to be starting a whole new attack where if I win the first one, I'm going to get a plus one on the next one. And then, just like you were saying, you know, I was having these terrible rolls, and you were feeling bad, until all of that luck completely reversed itself, and I got to Moscow, and I could not lose a battle. I, every, I was beating you on every single die roll. And then, I'm like, okay, well, let's attack uh, St. Petersburg. And I attacked there, and I won every single die roll. And then all of a sudden, rushes out of the game. Right, so it's a huge swing back, and uh, I think that I thought that was a you know I you didn't point that out to me, but um, yeah, it's true. The the uh, Austrians were just getting crushed, and I was I was having to permanently eliminate Austrian units so that the Russians wouldn't break through, and then all of a sudden uh, I am uh, destroying the entire Russian army and 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 taking over uh, Moscow and Saint Petersburg. So. I think a place that you and I align on is that once the correct line of play becomes so obvious in a game like that, though, it gets much harder to bust it back out. Like, I might play another game of the lamps are going out and see how that strategy works and see how it unfolds in the late game, but... Now that I know that, like, so much of that game, at least in the early phase, is about just keep just keep Russia standing. Just keep propping those guys up until they're going to go out of the war, but at that point, like, Americans should be arriving. Like, And, that, and, and let's, I just, I don't want to cut yeah. you off, but I want to make it clear to the listeners. They're going to go out of the war because when a certain card comes out, uh, that will it guarantees you that if you control four Russian provinces as the central powers, Russia will exit the game. It's sort of a 1917 revolutions card. Yeah. And that card is eventually going to get drawn. And when it gets drawn, you, I mean, it's going to be almost impossible for the Russians not to give up four provinces by 1917. And then they're out. So this, these things are historically scripted in, in a certain sense. 
Yeah, and every game we play wrestles to some degree with what's going to happen to Russia. Russia plays a hugely important part in the war, mm -hmm. and then eventually drops out. And if you're making an historical World War One game, probably Russia needs to collapse at some mm -hmm. point. Right. Uh, Lancer going out probably takes the most aggressive... Uh, it at least allows for the possibility that maybe Russia doesn't have to go out. Mm -hmm. But the map is constructed in right. such a way that the odds of those preconditions not having mm -hmm. been met mm -hmm. by the uh, Central Powers player, Russia's probably leaving the game. Right. Um, Paths of Glory has a uh, has two tracks that it's using to follow the progression of the Russian collapse mm -hmm. and the progression of American entry into the war. Oh, uh, Fields of Despair does. Uh, so does so uh, Pass of Glory. Pass of Glory has, has a Russian capitulation track. And yes, a, but yeah, right, that's true. Yes, yes, you're correct. Uh, yeah, so the, so it splits the two historical inevitabilities right. uh, into two separate tracks that you can manipulate. Uh, Fields of Despair, likewise, has right. a sort of timer for Russia. And what matters more is where luck comes into it is Russia can basically kill more or less Germans, depending mm -hmm. on how things have gone right. out there. And that's from a... Uh, a uh, not a chip pull, but it's uh, uh you're, you're it, reaching into a. a you're reaching, a bag. yeah. Let's say you're reaching into, into a bag, getting getting uh, blocks, and you yeah. just don't want the, to draw three Russian blocks. Right. And the more Russian blocks you draw, the more damage you're going to take, and your fewer yeah. reinforcements you'll have at the end of the game. Um, but anyway, so they all take different approaches uh, with that, but the effect of it is that, at least in the case of uh, lamps are going out. That is a game that once you understand that this is the dynamic of the game that you have to watch for, your entire game becomes constructed around that reality, right? Like that's, this is the line of play you have to follow because right. these things are almost certainly going to happen sure. barring repeated edge case dice rolls. Uh, ditto, uh, Paths of Glory, and this seems to be where you ended up with this game. Once you know about this exploit, let's call it, of the structure of the map and the uh, movement rules governing transfer of armies. Once you know about this, uh, and the victory point rules, and the way Italy's going into the war, once you know all of that, are you going to ignore the, the winning strategy that's just sitting there? Like, every turn you play that you are not wheeling the, right. the German columns east is a turn you are basically trying to just keep the Allied player propped up. Mm -hmm. And I think for me, because I, I, I'm new enough to the game, like that wouldn't bother me. I would still probably right. try to just keep mm -hmm. it on the historical rails a little bit and see, see what's up. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, once the game sort of has this, well, you really, you have to do this. Mm -hmm. You have to play right. with this expectation in mind. It becomes a lot less interesting to me. Um, and I think it's, it's funny to me that, um, you know, at least two of these games, and for all I know, maybe Fields of Despair will get solved mm -hmm. uh, in the near future in the, in, in the same way, if it hasn't been already. Uh, but it, it's funny to me that uh, both of these games end up having some replayability problems in that uh, the lamps are going out is going to force you to really internalize how to play with those mechanics in order to successfully recreate the history. And Paths of Glory is going to force you to basically figure, like, expect and understand the ways in which those mechanics will be used to blow apart the entire conceit of the game, which which is a historically driven World War One game. Yeah, I think that um, that any of these games, it, it's 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 a it's a tall order to expect somebody to design a game 
that's this complex and have it be perfectly balanced and have all these possible strategies, you know, played out ahead of time and all meet at some, you know, happy middle where the just where the determining factor is is quality of play, right? I mean, I think it's a lot more likely that there's going to be some as people ex- explore games, there's going to be some thing that they hit upon that exploits a certain part of the rules and then, you know, that breaks. But those are things that might not happen if a game is not as popular as, as you know, as good in other ways, right? I think Paths of Glory, Paths of Glory became such a popular game because I think it's a really good design. Um, there are other games, uh, Ted Racer actually has another game called Stalin's War, which uh, which is an Eastern Front game, which has some exploits that make it basically not a playable game. Um, but it, it really is a tall order to... Um, to try to make bulletproof games. And, uh, you know, I, I appreciate uh, all of these games for walking me through a historical, um, sort of historical imaginative space. Um, I think I was more disappointed in Paths of Glory because I didn't figure out that, that, that strategy. And, um, you know, as I was following the meta, you know, back in the old internet days, uh, this stuff was popping up on, you know, message on Genie and things like that. And, um, all of a sudden I was like, uh, Hey, this is, um, this is kind of broken. It was on Genie. Now, I guess that was, a, it might've just been the, on the old internet or Usenet. Um, and, uh, it just, uh, it just became sort of, a, it was a disappointment. I had felt like I had miss, I had misjudged the game, which it clearly hadn't because it, it did take uh, a very difficult to, to simulate campaign uh series of campaigns war and turn it into a very very enjoyable uh back and forth with another player which is something i didn't think at the time you could really do with with world war one certainly uh given how bad uh guns of august was um which guns of august guns of august is a is an avalon hill game that i played over and over because uh i was young and stupid and didn't know any better but it was just a terrible terrible hex-based uh you know, stack all your counters, roll your factors. It just was. There's no nothing interesting about it at all, um, and uh, that sort of set me uh, basically colored my view of World War One games for I think the since uh, for you know whatever probably 15 years until uh, Fields of Glory came out. Um, a last thing I want to bring up, going back to Fields of Despair for a second, mm-hmm. is um, when we're talking about like sort of historical inevitabilities. Again, like Russia and U.S. are going to enter. Uh, Russia is going to exit the war. The United States is going to enter. Mm-hmm. I did really enjoy the feeling of each of these contenders becoming exhausted by the war. And you mentioned the the way the strength points that enter the mm-hmm. battlefield will just be consumed yep. uh, on the Western Front. Yep. But I was particularly delighted uh, as as our game approached the midway point. The ways in which we were each having to basically decide which aspect of our war effort were we going to give short shrift to. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, so on that sort of sideboard you have where you track, uh, you know, your technology progress. Your investment. And, yeah. Yes, exactly. Uh, that's all hidden information. Right. But you only have so many points to allocate each turn. Uh, the U-boat war can start to undercut the points the Allies have to spend, but... The Germans are probably going to take the worst of it because they are they begin to run a deeper negative mm-hmm. uh, each turn, mm-hmm. and the escalation of naval blockade becomes really uh, crippling for them. 
But I did really enjoy the way that you're playing that game, and suddenly, for the first time, you have to think, like, is it more important that I be able to reload all my artillery counters so I can mm-hmm. use them right. throughout this turn? Or do I need to just decide that I'm not going to supply half my units mm-hmm. this this battle? Right. And that's a viable thing. Like, if those guys don't have to fight, right. um, then there's no harm done. Right. But if they find themselves in the shit and they're out of supply, then they're going to get ruined. They're fighting at half effectiveness? Yeah, that's why they roll half their number of dice. Yeah. Uh, so I found that, that escalation, uh, really cool because it was, again, it brings to life this feeling of, well, ideally I'd really like to have, I'd really like to have my troops proofed against gas attacks, but I also want gas of my own that I can deploy. And boy, it sure would be nice to be able to break through, but that requires new technology like stormtroopers or tanks. Uh, and I also need all my artillery and my aircraft to keep getting damaged. Right. And my troops need to eat. Which of these things am I going to invest right. in? Yes. And that choice just gets more and more pointed as the game continues to the point where, by the end, you're throwing... You are you are not just choosing the one area you're going to be weak at. You are basically like fighting the war on a shoestring across a variety of fronts. Right. Yeah, I, I I like the way that it gives you a lot of these choices, and you're always because it's a hidden information game. You're really wondering what you know. What is he doing over there? What is he? You know, man, he's getting more artillery. Is that, what? What does that mean that he's not doing? Right? Should I get? Should I get poison gas? Or maybe he's putting all the stuff into artillery and poison gas. Maybe I will. Uh, you know, because the the artillery hits will start hitting on. You know, it's a it's a bag of dice so fives and sixes hit but then if you have poison gas researched uh high enough then fours start hitting and then you know i'd like to have those fours hit but i you know it's all wasted if he's invested in gas masks so maybe i should just bluff him into investing in gas masks and uh hope that he's not investing in aircraft technology so that i can uh uncover his troops when um i think the reconnaissance mechanic is very well done yeah and well there was a turn where you had invested a lot in aircraft right and so there was a turn where i just as sort of happened to the allies historically right. there's a turn where the germans have figured out how to effectively dogfight right and the british and the french have not right and so i just got swatted out of the sky right. Right. and was blinded for a turn right and so i think that those things are all incorporated in a very easy way a very nice mechanic um it's uh it's a little bit of a you know like any block game it gets a little fiddly especially with three blocks per space and 20 strength points per block right because you're like okay wait i've got a 17 an 11 and a 14 so it's uh, 31 42 and then you go over here and you can't see this this it's hard to see the strength um uh at a glance so you, there's a lot of thinking but fortunately um you know you're doing a strategic reorganization simultaneously uh and the hidden mechanic you know you you throw blocks into the naval warfare bag and then on the, during that naval warfare draw you're like oh i just i i wonder you know what he's putting in there i wonder how many uh, uh cubes he's putting in and <clears throat> you see from the draws you know who, if anybody's getting predominance of uh of uh strength and so then you know you might get a lucky draw or an unlucky draw you may get an unlucky draw and you think that your opponent's putting a lot of a lot of cubes in the bag but actually they're not they just got a lucky draw I, i'm really um it really brings uh, across how 
good hidden information games can be when they're all done right. I also want to say about that game, um, it's really the the art design of the of the map and the, the everything is is extremely well done. Yeah, it's it's a beautiful game. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, I think of the of the games I played this this week, mm-hmm. my favorite easily. Yeah, uh, but also just. I think the one I'd be happiest to, of, to bring out, Fields right. of Despair. Field of, to, Fields of Despair is your favorite. Okay. Yeah. And right. just to bring it out and look at mm-hmm. it and sure. play around with it. Sure. Uh, I do think it's interesting, like, as I'm thinking about it, Fields of Despair poses hard choices for you, but mm-hmm. it feels good working through those trade-offs. Okay. I'm thinking about how I'm going to, uh, you know, how am I going to approach this next turn? Right. How are these trade-offs going to uh, dovetail my strategy? Lamps are going out. Is a game that sort of hides its trade-offs. Like it's it's again plays very quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, it 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 feels like you have uh, lots of lots of things you can do, and it doesn't even feel like you don't feel the pinch until it's too late. Mm-hmm. Really, yeah. Um, Paths of Glory, I think, wants to be excruciating when it comes to the trade-offs mm-hmm. because. Um, just like making the decision between playing the event and using the ops points, mm-hmm. that's hard enough. When you throw the difficulty of getting reinforcements mm-hmm. back onto the board, like mm-hmm. really digging deep and mm-hmm. getting those formations refreshed mm-hmm. right. and put back in the line, uh, and the sacrifices you have to make mm-hmm. in order to do that, like right. if you want to like fully refresh most of your armies. You're going to have to basically stand pat for a turn right. and just burn good cards mm-hmm. trying to get troops back on the field. Yep. Uh, like, it would have been opportune for me to bring Italy into the war at mm-hmm. a certain point. Italy had a lot of reinforcement points on mm-hmm. it. Uh, and uh, I needed to... <laughs> replacement points. I desperately needed those. And right. so I just had to bury the, the right. Italy card uh, just to re- replace some armies. And so that's that's another interesting angle. Is I think Paths of Glory really wants to evoke the just almost Kobayashi Maru hmm. aspect of strategic level World War World War One thinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, Fields of Despair, I think, wants you to make some positive choices uh, and and make some commitments to some things, and then lamps are going out. Almost wants it to feel like you don't have like super meaningful constraints until they become brutally apparent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that uh, that's a good way to put it. I'm I am of the opinion that uh, Fields of Despair is probably uh, the most open to um, just because of the variability in in you know where you put your strength and and your you can you can have you can have you know wildly differing choices as to where you put your put your main uh force so you can smash into each other or you can miss each other and you're dancing around in this wild crazy way but uh there you know there are technology to, it changes to make it's just a really um it can be wild like any hidden information block game can be so um i think it's i i really enjoy uh fields of despair but i do enjoy i i do enjoy uh, lamps are going out, and I've enjoyed Paths of Glory for years. It's a little, um, I mean, I, I kind of feel like I know it, so um, I just, it was interesting to hear what you thought about it. I am curious, like, if, you know, if I were staying another day, but I mm-hmm. really want, let's, let's play, let's get, let's, you know, let's have a, a full-on playthrough of one of these games, mm-hmm. and we have a little more time. Mm-hmm. Uh, what would you prefer to bring out? 
I think I would probably still bring out uh, Paths of Glory because I'm the more most familiar with it. I think it does do a when it's historical, it does a nice job. Um, I like seeing the historical events come up. I like these. Uh, although you said you they felt sterile to you. Um, yeah, we should. Yeah, we should talk about that a little bit. Okay. I think they only feel sterile to me because I've been so. I've been playing Twilight Struggle for so for so long, mm-hmm. um, and certainly there's a case to be made. And uh, in in his notes for Fort Sumter, Mark Herman makes the case that uh, you know you can't really gauge the thematic strength of a game unless you've done the work mm-hmm. uh, and and read the syllabus. But I think for me, um, Twilight Struggle. Those events are going to fire, and they have dramatic event. They, they have dramatic impacts. Like you have to. It's not just the scoring cards. You have to anticipate, like, oh, at this phase of the game, right? The entire game of Twilight Struggle is going to hinge on Southeast Asia because everything's going to start happening there, right. and that's going to stop because that card's going to score. That section's going to score. And it doesn't matter anymore. Mm-hmm. But you feel like historical movements happening in that game because both sides have incentives to play their events. Mm-hmm. And so when you see that card, it's like, okay, you're going to play for the ops points. I'm triggering the event. You're now out of, uh, you know, out of the Arab states. Um, Paths of Glory, maybe it's just because of, like, the nature of World War One is that it is a somewhat static system. It's a static war in a lot of ways. There's some dr- dramatic events uh, that, that unfold, but... Boy, are a lot of those cards just like reinforcements, mm-hmm. uh, you know, supply trains, uh, stuff right. like that. And so you'll have a nice, you know, nice historical photo mm-hmm. and some, you know, a, a, an effect that feels authentic. Sure, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, this French army comes out at this point if you play this event. But one, a lot of these things are just going to be burned for ops points, mm-hmm. uh, and two, they don't. By the nature of the game, they don't have the ability to overturn the, the, the state of the game the way that they do in Twilight Struggle. Well, that's because you have separate events. Yeah. Right. I mean, you have separate player decks, and that's a, that's a thing that, although I have to say um, that dilemma is completely, I don't know how to put it, um, that dilemma is relaxed to a great degree in a game that I'm going to show you after this podcast, which is called Empire of the Sun. And I actually think it works uh, even better than the other two systems because it makes low uh, ops cards actually valuable, sometimes more valuable than high ops cards. How did you do that? Well, we'll have to do another podcast and we'll do it about Empire of the Sun someday. But uh, so are you, uh, would you say that... Uh, this was a worthwhile uh, use of, of board gaming time to go through these games? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think uh, the two things that were really interesting here, like, it's fascinating. I'm doing a lot of reading on World War I uh, right now. I'm listening to the History of the Great War podcast, which mm-hmm. has been an absolute delight. Mm-hmm. Uh, but playing these games sort of back-to-back-to-back and seeing the ways they go about uh, trying to be historically authentic and mm-hmm. the different ways they, they arrive at that. 
Uh, and then seeing the way those assumptions and, and design aspirations interact with my own expectations mm -hmm. uh, for a game like this has been really eye-opening. It's one of those things where, like, I've learned a bit about myself as a player, uh, but it's also just been really interesting to see how radically different approaches to game design and modeling and historical conflict uh, can lead to some perverse outcomes in places, but certainly some really unexpected avenues toward historical accuracy that at first glance you would never you'd never give credence to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you. I'm glad we were able to go through these. Um, there are more. There obviously there are more. Uh, one, one. There's a there's a big one called uh, Great War Deluxe that GMT uh, published, and there's um, Al Nofi has uh, Great War uh, game. Um, there, I mean, there are other good ones, but I thought these were these were the ones. And I mentioned John Gorkowski's Balance of Powers, but um, I thought this was this was a selection of games that we could make meaningful progress in over the course of a couple days since we, we had um, a day set aside for Cataclysm, which you may have already listened to uh, as a podcast or maybe about to listen to as a podcast. Um, and then I wanted to show you uh, um, uh, Empire of the Sun, so that's another another block of time. But uh, in, a, in, a, in a long day and a half, I think we got three, um, basically starting at noon one day and going to 11 p.m. on the next day, uh, we got through three very different World War One games, and I hope that was uh, that was useful and helpful and enjoyable. All right, uh, so that will do it for this week. We'll be back next week with more strategy discussion. Three Moves Ahead is produced, as always, by Michael Hermes and is hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. You can learn more about the show and discuss this episode with our community at threemovesahead.net or follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash 3MA. Finally, Three Moves Ahead is supported by listeners just like you on Patreon. You can learn more at patreon.com slash 3MA. Anyway, we'll be back next week with another episode of Three Moves Ahead. Until then, for Bruce, this is Rob Zachney saying goodnight.